0: What does justice look like for women in some of these areas? Sometimes it's being graced with um, a second postpartum. So from the womb to the tomb, there is
1: an undercurrent, uh, you know, theme of conflict that goes on and on, for women particularly.
2: We all know that women deal with violence on a daily basis. Even if we think that it doesn't happen to us, we know that it happens to someone. I'm Amiya Nagarajan and this is Hear Me Too, a podcast that explores the extent of violence against women in India, urban and rural, and the second and third level effects it has on our society and economy. I'm working in collaboration with UN Women as part of the 16 Days of Activism movement for 2018. In this last episode, I want to look at what happens to women when they find themselves in spaces of conflict. It's important to understand that conflict is not just people fighting with weapons. Just as violence is not one person physically or sexually attacking another. Women are already extra vulnerable to violence simply by virtue of being women. If there's one thing I've learned these past six weeks, it's that there's always some kind of violence that society is enacting upon women. From telling you what to eat and when to eat and where to go and what time to do it, all the way to effectively owning your voices and bodies.
3: There are factors that make women far more vulnerable to violence.
2: That's Nishtha Satyam, the deputy representative of UN Women in India.
3: We have historically looked at conflict as armed conflict you know, where people have guns, there are two parties fighting, it's a battlefield, there's an open declaration of war, we've often known and taught to look at those situations and say, oh, well, that's conflict, women are wonderful there. What has happened over the last two decades, it's that the very notion of conflict has changed. Armed conflict has been replaced by civilian conflict. Intra-regional conflict has been replaced with inter-regional conflict and the other way around sometimes the very definition of who's in conflict, who are the parties, has been difficult to point out. And that has led to the emergence of what we in UN language call non-traditional security threats. Non-traditional security threats actually is a term that is broad enough to even recognize climate change. Let me give you a small insight here. Sudden changes in climate change, spur
0: migration,
3: unplanned migration, Unplanned migration spurs trafficking. Trafficking is violence against women. We've often known that when there's a disaster, women are exponentially more vulnerable to the situation than men are. And therefore, I think a parity in addressing what we think or how we respond to conflict is important. But what's also more fundamental to it is what we recognize as conflict. But the bottom reality that we have seen is women are disproportionately vulnerable to conflict situation, traditional or non-traditional. And that is why, in such situations, actions of rehabilitation, recovery and redressal also have to disproportionately focus
2: on women. Conflict is a huge problem. But also, like Nishtha said, conflict needs to be understood differently.
1: When we say uh, conflict is not just war, absence of peace is also conflict in the sense absence I'm not talking about war on the borders uh, or or of a communal rioting but the fact that there is inequitable access to resources the fact that you are not able to access the uh, amenities the facilities the, the resources which the state or your family should give you that itself is conflict there is a conflict when there's dichotomy of identities when you know that you have a certain potential and you're still not able to explore that potential, that is conflict. So conflict is actually a very wide term that we use. So I would say that when you are not able to explore your potential, when, there's, when you are not able to access the resources of either your family, your community or the country, that is conflict. And women face that tremendously.
2: That was Meera Khanna, a writer and social activist who has been working with the Guild of Service for 18 years. The Guild works to help the underprivileged, focusing on women and children, both at the policy and the grassroots levels, which gives Mira a unique perspective on why and how policy is made and how it plays out on the ground. The Guild has a shelter in Kashmir, and I asked Mira to tell me about women in that space of conflict, which is both armed when the state and the militants are fighting and not armed when the state is quote-unquote peaceful under AFSPA.
1: In conflict areas, many things come in. She's a woman and most probably or most the likelihood of she being a widow is very high. Mm. She also being a migrant is there because you get displaced. In in a conflict area, it's like as if a huge spotlight is put on on that violence against women. As a woman, as a widow, as a migrant, as a displaced woman, or if she is the widow of a non-state actor, then the stigmatization that comes in.
2: A non-state actor, in this case, is usually an actor involved in armed conflict who doesn't belong to a state. This could be a militant, a rebel, pretty much anyone who isn't employed by the state in some way.
1: The widow of a militant, or a jihadi, or a fidae. So then she gets stigmatized by the state. She also gets stigmatized within that social framework that she is in. And she didn't have a say in the decision. You know, which is why I always say conflict or armed conflict is a gendered activity. Armed conflict is almost always masculinized, but the impact of conflict is almost always feminized because who is left to pick up the pieces of their lives and make some sense of it for herself and for the children? The guy has made a decision, got into the conflict willingly, unknowingly, voluntarily, involuntarily, but he's taken his decision, faced the consequences and gone, leaving the woman behind and with the family. With absolutely practically no avenue of earning. With no support. And with a social ostracism thrown into it. So women and children are the worst victims of war.
2: She tells me the story of a woman in their shelter in Kashmir. She was married to a man who was recruited to militancy and then he died. Leaving her with five children.
1: Obviously within 18 to 24 months he got killed. And... Uh, when he got, I, I think she was a very brave woman and she realized that there are these five mouths to feed and nothing. She insisted because she knew that she couldn't get any uh, pension from, at that time there was no pension for widows of non-state actors. So she caught hold of the guy who, in, who uh, recruited her husband and she said, I want, uh, I want to get a, uh, you know, a compensation, muavza." from from the people who's, who put him on this job. So obviously they laughed at her. They said, you think you're going to get uh, uh, this thing, Muabza from, uh, uh, from uh, the militants? So she said, I don't care because somebody's sitting up somewhere, sitting safe, and somebody else is doing the dirty job for them. So my husband did the dirty job, so you might as well pay me. She stuck on with them and she also threatened that she would ensure that you know from her village nobody would get recruited into this jihad and i think that area was very fertile ground at that point of time for uh, for recruiting young men she managed to get the money that was a funny thing she managed i don't know how much she managed but she went i think she went across the border she didn't she never told us the exact details but she crept, probably crept across the border and managed to get some money for her children.
2: I asked Meera about migration. Why do women migrate? What makes them go? She said that people migrate in Kashmir because of militant visits and then state actor visits. Often women pay the price of their husbands decisions to join the conflict. They won't have the support of the state or the village. Then they also want their sons to escape the same fate. They want their daughters to be safe. In other places, migration is also driven by family. The widows of Vrindavan are migrants, some of them by choice and some of them just packed off by their families. Many women are migrants because their husbands decide to leave for better opportunities. Many are often displaced by climate change and development, of dams and mines for
0: example. My name is Arura Chandrasekhar, I'm an independent journalist and researcher and for the last seven years I've been looking at issues around land, around indigenous communities, and their displacement for large development projects, particularly around energy, coal mining, but also to look at rising conflict in areas where there is resource capture as well as climate change impacts.
2: Aruna's work has taken her to many places where there is rising conflict of different kinds around natural resources. Most of the
0: districts that I've traveled in, nearly half the population is not formally literate. Out of that, more than half constitutes women. So if you're talking about property rights, you're talking about large khatiyans or registers of land records and surveys that go prior to independence, uh, the numbers of notifications that talk about how land is acquired, for instance. All of this is in language that is inaccessible. The biggest issues when it comes to any sort of administrative land acquisition process is the fact that they need to consult and seek the consent of women. But informed consent is essentially what it needs to be. However, none of these notifications are publicized. There is no drum beating. There are no sit-down sessions where impacts of large projects are discussed with women. This is typically a conversation that happens with a village headman, even if the woman is a sarpanch or a village chief, it's her husband or her son who is typically doing the reading of the documents, um, consulted on how to move forward with villagers. Um, And in most cases, this is done without the consent of Adivasi women, despite this being ingrained and enshrined in the law. For instance, a company like Coal India, which is the world's largest coal producer and sixth largest carbon emitter, can simply acquire land by issuing three notices in a gazette that nobody reads and bam, that's it, you're done. Um, Land belongs to the Ministry of Coal and to the company forever. There is no way to contest this except by sending in written objections um, to the ministry and hoping for the best. But even this is not something that uh, women can fight. The only thing that they can fight for is in terms of compensation and looking at livelihood. Now, the other thing that while everybody right now at the UN climate talks and otherwise is talking about climate justice, they're talking about a just transition as we move um, our economies from fossil fuels to renewables to make sure that coal jobs are not lost. This is the ticket that essentially Trump seems to be riding on and also the Indian government as well talking about development. Many of Coal India's subsidiaries, for instance, up until last year didn't offer women jobs. They considered mines to be too hazardous for women to work in not the kinds of conditions that they have left them with the kinds of pollution that is extremely rampant houses are covered like with inches thick of coal lined everywhere you've got um, accidents happening every other day you have migration of labor within these areas but at the same time we're also talking about loss of fertility of land if you're going to draw as much water from mines if you're going to hack the forest down the essential livelihood and the tasks that women would perform or survive on. You're leaving them with very little options while at the same time saying that it is too hazardous for them to work. Now, this has left thousands of women um, jobless. The only situations um, in which they've been offered employment have been in the cases of which their father or their brother has been killed in a fatal accident and in lieu of that, uh, women receive jobs. Now, certain subsidiaries do have um, more enlightened policies, which have involved hiring women. But to a large extent, this is something that's um, the, the track record of, of of women working in the mines that displace them is extremely small, um, which leads them to do other things like the perhaps the cruelest irony for me is to witness um, and to have witnessed a woman who's House was forcibly evicted having to scavenge coal from uh, the same very land to build bricks in a brick kiln that was also declared illegal so she could live next to the mine which is set to displace her again and sell whatever that she can in the open market carrying kilos of coal to go and sell for 120 to 200 rupees a day. I've also seen women um, working as contract laborers where the only job available is for them to essentially climb up a coal truck uh, on a ladder in a sari uh, and place a tarpaulin sheet over a mining truck. uh, That's putting you at risk of, of course, besides heavy amounts of pollution and particulate matter-based respiratory disease on one hand, and on the other hand, um, making you extremely vulnerable to exploitation, um, to also dealing with contractors. Uh, And women have spoken to me about um, lots of instances of harassment um, while there. So the avenues for employment are extremely dire when it comes to um, women who are typically sacrificing their lands. Uh, So the rest of us may have power and listen to this podcast.
2: I asked both Meera and Aruna if it was fair to say that women were more affected than men. In these situations a Dalit man a poor Dalit
1: man would face violence of a certain kind but a poor Dalit woman would face the uh, violence which is of a much higher dimension and degree than of the i'm not comparing the two kinds of violence i'm only talking about the relative dimensions of these two violence the trauma is tremendous you can't say that the dalit man faces you know he faces a less trauma because of the violence and the woman faces. That's not it, but I'm just uh, just show, indicating the different layers of violence it's like an onion peel. you can keep peeling it and you find more and more layers that come out of it.
0: Are women more affected than men? Yes, um, in so many different spheres, starting with looking at land tenure and insecurity around it we're looking at how many forest rights titles for instance are given to adivasi women who may lack the access to education to be able to fill out the paperwork have it passed have them recognized as owners of their own land the second part comes around in connection to land who is having the discussions around whether they want to sell or not sell their land to begin with All of these are conversations typically had with upper caste men. Everybody wants to have a woman at the forefront of their protest, but what goes unacknowledged is the intimidation, the harassment, um, the fact that women are prone to threats of sexual violence at the um, hands of land mafia or security forces or different armed groups that are working in the region. All of these are, uh, that come with the price of speaking truth to power. Who gets the glory of the protest? Who gets to decide whether a family says yes or no? In which case, who receives that compensation and who gets to spend it? So many of these decisions are tied into gender where men decide whether a family should uproot itself and up and go and live in a city or how it will make its way through looking at single women, looking at single mothers, the mountain of opposition that they face of having to go from one office to the other to literally beg for their rights and to beg for an access to justice. So many of these cases that we're seeing in terms of Me Too have been extremely urban-centric, for instance, but we're not talking about access to justice when it comes to having security forces in your own backyard. For instance, the Vakapali rape case is now in its 11th year, where they've finally undertaken a potency test for greyhound personnel that were involved in the rape of over 11 Adivasi women. And that's what it's come to, where the state of Andhra Pradesh, for instance, is finally showing some signs That even lobbied against letting the women choose a public prosecutor that they trusted as part of powers under the Scheduled Castes and Scheduled Tribes Prevention of Atrocities Act. This was something that was challenged by the Andhra Pradesh government. So these are the kinds of systems of justice that await women who decide to seek remedy or redressal. When you're looking at companies, if you're going to raise your voice, for instance, you're looking at Pavitri Manji, Adivasi Sarpanch, based in Raigad in Chhattisgarh, who has filed criminal complaints against a coal company and a power plant for forcibly forging land records to acquire her community's land. And she's dealing with phone calls and threats every other day to her life, looking at the life of Soni Sori, deciding to choose a life of activism and coming back despite facing horrific assault at the hands of police in both Chhattisgarh as well as in New Delhi and New Delhi. Um, being under custody for over two years while her husband is as well. Not was a crime, essentially talking about violations of rights. And it's extremely easy for women to be tainted and colored as Maoist. What does justice look like for women in some of these areas? Sometimes it's being graced with a second postmortem. Madhagam Hidme is a 23-year-old Adivasi woman, Who lived in the village of Gompad, and she was both uh, sexually violated as well as killed, and labelled and dressed in Maoist fatigues and accused of being one. And if it weren't for again women human rights defenders as well as journalists and who looked into that particular encounter and demanded that there be another post mortem, she would never have seen justice. And this is one of the few cases in which there has been an inquiry into what has happened. So if this is the kind of attitude of the state, which is whether it's in terms of the violence of the lack of education, of access to justice, of access to basic facilities, or for valuing the work that they do, then or for valuing their rights over their land, it's an uphill climb in more ways than one. It's an uphill climb in
2: more ways than one. I couldn't have found better words to end this series with. The only way we can change the ridiculous extent to which women face violence is to change the way we think about women and violence. Remember, violence is more than physical and sexual. It can be mental, emotional. It can be not having access to bathrooms or money. Remember, workplaces are not just offices. Workplaces can be homes. They can be streets and buses. They can be factories. And workplace violence is more than sexual harassment. Remember, domestic violence can be perpetrated by sons and brothers, not just husbands. Remember, threats online are also criminal intimidation, just like threats in real life. Remember, until we change the deeply entrenched patriarchy in our social norms, we will fight this battle and we will lose. I'm Ameya and this is Hear Me Too from Express Audio and UN Women India. If you like the show, please do subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Express Podcasts. Or if you prefer email, you can write to us at podcasts at indianexpress.com. Thank you for listening.